Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 27, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Coming up in a few moments, we'll welcome veteran actor and director Perry King to the show. Perry's directorial debut, The Divide, won 16 industry awards and screened at the Cannes Film Festival. In segment two, we'll ask Perry about his experience making the film and for advice for all you filmmakers out there, and all in time to enter your projects for this year's West Sound Film Festival. The festival will take place, we're hoping in person this year, August 5th through 8th, and submissions will be accepted through the end of June. For more info, visit westsoundfilmfestival.com. And speaking of fine films, tune in to our YouTube channel this week for our latest In the Mix segment, celebrating Audrey Hepburn, whose birthday is this week, and one of her best films, Roman Holiday. We'll be back at the Bay Street Bistro in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington, where they'll be featuring Greg's Cocktail of the Week, the Roman Holiday, this Sunday, May 9th, Mother's Day, in case you forgot, uh, along with a special Mother's Day menu. That's right, boys and girls, this Sunday is Mother's Day. So skip the flowers, take mom out to eat. Call now and make a reservation at 360-602-0310 or email reservations at baystreetbistro.com. The Heilman and Haver Library is growing fast by the day and we love interviewing authors. We hope you had a chance to tune into our last interview with Robert Bader, author of Three of the Four Musketeers, The Marx Brothers on Stage, and Groucho Marx and Other Short Stories and Tall Tales, Selected Writings of Groucho Marx. If not, scroll down for episode 26 and stay tuned for more authors coming up in the next few weeks. And now we're delighted to welcome to the show actor and director Perry King. Perry attended Yale and Juilliard, where he studied with Orson Welles' producing partner and collaborator John Hausman, and also with Stella Adler at her school of acting. And he made his film debut in 1972 in Slaughterhouse-Five. Perry auditioned for the role of Han Solo in Star Wars, and after the role went to Harrison Ford, played Solo in the radio adaptations of all three original films. In 1984, Perry was nominated for a Golden Globe for the TV movie The Hasty Heart, and that same year he landed the role of Cody Allen on the series Riptide, which he appeared in from 1983 to 1986. In the mid-90s, Perry starred in the television adaptation of A Stranger in the Mirror and appeared on Melrose Place. He's also appeared in Spin City, Will and Grace, Eve, and Cold Case, and as the President of the United States in the 2004 film The Day After Tomorrow. Perry's directorial debut, The Divide, in which he also starred, won 16 industry awards and appeared at the Cannes Film Festival. He was awarded a special jury award for performance at the Arizona International Film Festival, Best Actor Honors at the California Independent Film Festival, and Best First-Time Director from the London Independent Film Awards. Perry joins us from his ranch in cool California. Sounds like a, I don't know, I listened to that and that sounds pretty good. I I guess. uh... (laughs) It is. (laughs) You always leave out all the agony and stress and panic and fear. and <laughs> it's, But if it was easy, everybody would do it. You know, it sounds like it all just goes smoothly. And boy, did it not, right? But what the hell? But so we were we were talking before you started rolling. And we were talking about John Houseman, you mentioned. And I was at Juilliard in 1970. I started Juilliard. And I, I wanted to stay there. But I got really lucky through a series of lucky accidents. And I managed to... And I auditioned for and then did a sort of screen test for this movie with Shirley MacLaine called The Possession of Joel Delaney. And I got the part. And I got the part for a very clear reason in my 
my mind. And in retrospect, I'm sure I know why I got it. I got it because it never occurred to me I could get it. I, I had no fear, no stress, no worry. It's the only time I ever screen tested or auditioned where I wasn't trying to win, you know, because I assumed they'd immediately realize I was at Julia. I didn't know what I was doing. I was a kid. I figured they'd throw me out, you know, <laughs> but they didn't. They cast me. And I went to back to Juilliard and said to all the teachers there, I got this incredible part. The title lead in a movie with Shirley MacLaine. She's producing and starring in it. And an incredible part to two roles, really. Her brother, a very screwed up kid, and also playing this murderer. I may be possessed by the spirit of a dead Puerto Rican murderer or not. You never know. It's really when Shirley MacLaine first began, I think this is accurate, to to dabble in spiritualism of different kinds. I think that movie awoke something in her. We were dealing with Espiritismo, which is a, a religion in Hispanic and I think Puerto Rican cultures about spirits and things of that kind. A lot of strange things happened on that film. She, by the way, was so good to me. God, what a wonder. This is this has been the dominant theme in my career. And she and John Hausman are two examples of that. Routinely, all the way along, when I'd try my best, trying as hard as I could, caring deeply, but being, you know, less than brilliant, I'd run into these people, these extraordinary, skillful famous often and very successful people that would help me just out of generosity and kindness and goodness. She was one of them. She taught me so much. John Hausman helped me. But I went to this, the teachers at Juilliard and I said, what should I do? I've got this amazing part. And they said, oh, turn it down. They said, you should study now and you can do movies later, right? That didn't seem like a good <laughs> idea to me, but I didn't know what to do. So I went to John Hausman the leader of this. And he was like the leader. I mean, he was the God of this school, wonderful man. And uh, I said, what should I do? And here's what he said. It's great advice. He said, he said, I believe an actor should work when he can work and study when he can't. After you do this movie, if you want to come back, the doors are open. And I never did get back because I kept working, you know, things kept happening. But uh, actually I got to be in, I think two separate films that I was starring in with him playing smaller parts in it, um, which was just so much fun, you know, and he was so great and said, oh, look at us. Look, you were my student and now you're starring in this. And But um, another thing that you, I know you'd express some interest in his relationship with Orson Welles. And one of the things he told me in his office one day was he said that their relationship ended with, with Orson Welles furious at him, screaming, lighting and throwing at him lit cans of sterno. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know what that stuff is, but that stuff, oh, yeah. you can't put that stuff out. Nope. It's like napalm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like napalm. And, and here's this erudite, sophisticated British man getting ducking lit cans of sterno. He said, that's the last time he ever saw our smalls. <laughs> <laughs> and you can understand why that would kind of end a relationship, wouldn't it? So do you think you got that part in, in that film because you were young and had that fearless? I got it because I never thought that I would get that part. I got three parts, bang, 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 right away out of the blue, just got lucky, sent to these auditions. That part, I got Slaughterhouse-Five and I also got 
I never did it, but I was supposed to replace Ken Howard in a play on Broadway called Child's Play. And all three of those things, I'd go into these auditions wide-eyed thinking, my God, I'll get to see what it's like to audition. I'll, I'll learn so much. But I never had one thought of succeeding, never for a second did it occur to me. Now, once I did those jobs, I did those two films, came back to New York. Now it's my chance to start again. Now I go out on the basically the fourth audition of my life and I blew it right away because I wanted it, you know, because I had that pressure that we all put on ourselves. It's a great lesson if you can learn it. It's hard to learn. And I'm not sure I ever successfully learned it. The lesson of, you know, Zen and the art of archery, really, you cannot hit the target if you point the arrow at it. Hmm. Well, now, this sounds like these things were taking uh, place when you were in your early 20s. Is that right? Yeah, I got to New York. I started Juilliard. I graduated from Yale. So I was 22. My daughter, my daughter, my oldest daughter was born within weeks of me starting Juilliard. A busy guy. Yeah. She now teaches laparoscopic robotic surgery at Harvard. And she also teaches in the law school at Harvard because she's a lawyer and a doctor. Isn't that amazing? Incredible. And one time I said to her, she's a very driven person and incredibly smart and capable. But, but one time I said to her, you know, there can only be a handful of people in the whole world that can say they've taught in two separate schools at Harvard. And she said, well, you take what you can get. <laughs> I'd take it. <laughs> He's just amazing, amazingly driven. And I have a younger daughter who's equally amazing. She, my younger daughter has won numerous poetry prizes, been published and been paid for poetry. She gets paid for poetry. Imagine that's like an oxymoron. Who would get in the world today gets paid to write poetry? But she does. <laughs> so you've got one, one scientific and one artistic. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And the poet, her name is Hannah. Hannah actually wants to, and I'm sure will eventually find a way to combine. She's done a lot of scientific, uh, academics and she wants to find a way to marry those two similar to and this is my example not hers but to i can't remember her name but the lady who wrote still alice do you know that film still alice mm -hmm. about alzheimer's yeah she 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 is a and i may get this wrong but she's a psychologist or a psychiatrist and she had specialized in alzheimer's and written books that were non-fictional about alzheimer's and she wanted to write a book that allowed you to feel it from the inside. So a fictional book about a fictional character with Alzheimer's. So she's marrying those two, the art of writing and the science. Nice. Wow. So when you, uh, you, you went to New York and made trips out to LA, but at what age did you decide that, that being an actor was for you? When did the, when did you first get bit by the bug? We always like to find that out. Well, my story is, I think, identical to almost every actor I've ever known, which is that it happened when I was a little kid. My father had gave great advice to his children. My father was a doctor, a surgeon, but his father had also been a surgeon. And my father was told to be a surgeon, you know, back in the thirties. And he had no choice. He was a very good doctor and, and loved it, I think. But I doubt if he would have done that on his own. So he never wanted to do that to his children. So this is what he told us. And it's just great advice. Told thousands of people this advice. He said, figure out something you do for free because you love it so much. And then figure out how to pay your bills with it. And he said, and that's the critical thing. He said, that's all you got to do is pay your bills. You don't have to get rich. doesn't matter. 
just pay your bills with this thing you love. So I would sit at home as a little kid and I'd watch old black and white Westerns. And I remember very clearly hearing that advice from my father, watching those old B Westerns, Tim Holt and Lash LaRue and stuff like that. And I, I remember thinking, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. And it took me 50 years, but I finally did it, a black and white Western. So it was your first love then? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I, most, most actors would tell you, you don't choose acting. It chooses you. It's more like being having an addiction or something or in a terrible affliction. It's not, you know, from the outside, I don't, you guys may know this, but most civilians sort of that are not in show business don't realize how, now I suppose this is true of every profession, but it's really rough and brutal and mean and demeaning. And I mean, I could tell you, I could count at least six close friends that in my opinion have died from it. Wow been killed by show business. I mean, no joke, killed by show business. Marco Hemingway, Jonathan Brandis. Jonathan Brandis and I, we did a movie of the week together in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and he was so great. He was about 20, really good actor, but nice guy. His mother was with him, but not as a stage mother, just to keep him company. And he was so hot. We'd go to the local newsstand in the mid-90s, you know, in this little this little village in, in, Czech, in the Czech Republic, and you'd see his face on all the magazines. It wasn't a setup. It was just he, he was that hot. And then we at the end of this film, we said, oh, we'll write each other. We'll stay in touch. We'll have fun together. We'll do things. And then you go off and and you almost never do stay in touch. And like 10 years later, maybe. Maybe 12 or 14, I'm sitting in the room I'm in right now. And I remember looking at the news on online and he's killed himself. Hmm. And I know exactly what happened to him. And I was so pissed off at myself because I thought maybe, maybe I would have been the one that could have helped him because I knew by then, because I was older than him by, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years, whatever, um, that I know something that Bo Bridges actually taught me years ago. I was wailing and moaning about, oh, I'd done this job and it was over and I'm never going to work again. And the stuff that every actor moans about, oh, that's it. <laughs> How will I ever get another job? Blah, blah, blah. And, and Bo, Bo Bridges said, Harry, if you go up and then you go down and then you go up and then you go down. And when you're up, enjoy the hell out of it because you know you're going to go down. And when you're down, relax. All you got to do is wait a certain amount of time, who knows how long, and you go up again. That's what it does. Up, down, up, down, up, down. And just enjoy the journey because that's all you get. Now, if I told Jonathan Brandis that, maybe that would have helped him. I don't know. I wish, wish to God I'd stayed in touch with him. But Brittany Murphy, remember Brittany Murphy? Mm -hmm, yep. So I did a, a series called Almost Home that didn't work out, didn't last for long. It was sweet, but there were there were six actors on it, two grown-ups, and then four kids. Brittany Murphy was one of them. And I remember thinking of these six actors, four of them are superb and so skillful, and two of them don't have a clue. One of them was me that didn't have a clue. <laughs> I've never been able to do that kind of three-camera comedy, that kind of da-da-da-da-da-da-ha-ha. You know, that that kind of, that rhythm. So Brittany Murphy, I've done since that series, I continued to work a lot and things went well. The four that were really good, incredibly good and skillful, you never see them anywhere. I haven't. Hmm. Brittany Murphy became a big movie star. And then the pressure of that and the panic of that and anorexia and weirdness and who knows what all. Next thing you know, she's dead. 
when I knew her, when we were doing that show, she was just this sweet, bubbly, innocent, and completely unaware teenage girl. No idea what she was doing, but what she was was perfect for the part, so it didn't matter. Acting is one of those things that there's politics, there's marketing, there's all these professions that are components of being an actor that you have no facility to understand. You haven't gone to school for, for any of these things. Sometimes I help out an acting school in LA where a friend of mine teaches acting and very, very good school, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. It's the only really good school that I know of in LA anyway. And that's one of the things I talk to him about is auditions. And I say, you're auditioning for a bunch of people that have a very complicated, big agenda and most of that agenda is not related to you. So when you don't get the part, which is almost always true, it probably has nothing to do with you. You know? Yeah. Now you got to live with that. There's nothing you can do. And you're absolutely right about that. The, the, but the thing that's so hard about an acting career is that when you get rejected, which you do on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, all you ever hear is no, 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 no. You know, like actors so often say, oh God, I have no, they always say, we don't have any film on you. We can't see film on you. Well, what I hear at my age is we have too much film on you. You've been around too long. <laughs> Whatever you want, it's no good, you know? I mean, one time I was reading the breakdowns. This is true. Actors aren't supposed to ever see him, but I had an agent that would let me look him over. And it's sort of reports on what they're casting or going to cast. So there was this movie of the week breakdown, and it really looked very interesting, the movie of the week. Like, it might be very good. And it described the lead guy as a Perry King type. So I called up the casting person, and I said, hi, I'm Perry King. <laughs> right? And, and I like the sound of your movie. I think I'd like to do it. The casting person said, oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. You're, you're not right for it. We want a Perry King type, but you're too old. <laughs> so even when they tell you that it's described as you, you can't get it. So it's always so personal. See, that's the thing. If you're a painter, it's horribly hard. My younger sister is a painter. She's been a painter all her life. But at least what she's trying to to merchandise, to sell, to get people to like, is over there on a canvas. If you're a musician, it, it's in the air, the sound you're making. But when you get rejected as an actor, it's me. Mm -hmm. They're saying, no, we don't want you. We want him and him and him and him and him, but not you. You know, it's tough. It, it's brutal. Yeah, and Matt, Matt and I have done some stage acting, and we know just from auditioning there that it's not just about you. It's about how you look next to the person you're being cast with. Oh, absolutely. And, and there's right. so many variables, and it's a lot to ask of a person to not take it personal when you get you know rejected from a role. But I mean, exactly right. And I tell these kids that all the time. I say that uh, they always think, well, I could play this part. And that's true. You could play that part. But you couldn't play it exactly the way they're looking for someone to play it. You know, the main lesson I've learned about auditions is, I think, is at least 95% of the time as the door swings open, it's over. It's already over. But they can't tell you that. They can't say, because I've been on the other side, too. And so often the door swings open, you think, oh, shit, now I got to be nice to this person and, and make them feel secure and good, even though I know there's no way in hell that person's going to get the 
hard mm -hmm. for this reason or that, whatever the reasons are, you know, you, they can't say, I'm sorry, just close the door again because it ain't going to work. Right. They can't do that. So if that's the case, I tell young actors, I say, all right, you got 10 minutes or whatever it is. What are you going to do with that time? And the answer is have fun with it. Blow it out the window. Do whatever you want. And also, I'm mean as, a, as a somebody being auditioned. If I see anybody, they're always behind schedule. They're always in a rush. They're always in a panic. And if, I, if I'm doing, you know, they stick a camera in your face and they have somebody read the lines just badly, always terribly, they read the lines off camera and the lighting's awful. And if I see somebody look at their watch in the middle of that, I say, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, this isn't, this isn't working. Can I start again, please? Which is the last thing they want because they're, <laughs> they're already late, right? <laughs> I mess with them. You probably lost the part anyway. Why not? Make your life terrible, you know? <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the roles that you auditioned for was none other than Han Solo. Now, when you obviously right. auditioned for the, for the film, it wasn't the mega hit, the massive success that it became because it was obviously the first film. But can you tell us a little bit about what that audition um, was like for you and what that experience was like? Well, I remember it pretty well, actually. I remember for one thing, I met George Lucas. I, th I think we were over in the, some of the old buildings over in Paramount, the buildings that looked like Scott Fitzgerald had probably been hanging around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Lucas is there and he said, I'm making a movie for kids. And I remember, and as you say, it's important to remember, it wasn't Star Wars then. It was just another movie, somebody making a movie. That's all. And uh, and he said, I'm making a movie for kids. And I thought, oh, crap. Well, the last thing I want to be is in the kids movie. <laughs> But he said, it's a movie for kids from 8 to 80. And that's a line he used many, many times since then. But it's certainly the first time I ever heard that line. And that was intriguing, the idea that the kid, he was making a movie for the kid in all of us. But several years ago, but long after the movie was made, they, they were doing some special edition with special stuff on it, you know. And, uh, and they wanted to show auditions of people that hadn't gotten the parts. And so they sent me my audition tape and they said, can we use this in this special edition? And I'd never seen the, the screen test I did. I did it with Charlie Martin Smith. I, so I saw this audition. It was terrible. I was awful. I saw it and I thought, no wonder, good God, no wonder I didn't get the part. <laughs> I mean, good God, I was pathetic. But then somehow, and I don't even know why or how this happened which is pretty common in show business. You don't really know. You never really know why you're working or why you're not. But um, somehow I managed to get, I was the second person to play Han Solo on the radio show. And radio acting is the most fun acting in the world because there's no technical requirements for it. You guys are stage actors. You know how tough stage is. Stage is where you earn your money. Stage is really tough. I mean, I've been on Broadway. That's really working and hard. I've been on Broadway once and I'm very grateful I've been on Broadway once and I never want to be on Broadway again. <laughs> it's way too much work. But um, but radio acting has no technique. I mean, stage acting has all kinds of techniques you've got to master. Film acting has a whole other bunch of techniques you just got to learn, like matching and hitting your marks and key lights and no overlaps and blah, 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 right? Radio acting, all you got to do is learn how to turn pages silently. 
that's it. And that's actually quite easy. You, the trick I liked, there's a few tricks, but you guys, I'm sure, know this. But you spritz your pages so they're sort of damp, so they don't crinkle. Yep. And it's that easy, you know. But from that point on, you don't even have to learn the lines, which is, you know, a difficult part of film acting, when particularly of stage acting, and has to be done. You know, it's just it's just sweat work, really, learning lines usually. But you don't have to learn the lines. All you got to do is figure out the fun part. What are you going to do with that line? How are you going to play it? How are you going to roll with it? You know, like doing Han Solo on radio. I was my favorite part was all the scenes I did with uh, Chewbacca with Chewie. Chewie became a real identity to me. I mean, to me, Chewie is somebody I knew years ago really well because I do all these scenes for hours. I I'd be in front of a microphone all alone in, in the studio, kind of like you are there. And I'd say, hey, so Chewy, what do you think? What are, how are we going to do this? What, are, what do we do next? Pause, 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 pause. Oh, okay, Chewy, I, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> Let's do it. You know? And so the only way you could do that as an actor is you got to have a real clear idea of who you're talking to, you know, because he's got to be right there in your mind, right beside you. I mean, that was just one time Mark Hamill and I and the director – John Madsen, very good director, really fun to work with. But we were doing a scene. We did all these scenes that were never in the movie, that were written by Lucas, but cut out. So it was all original material that Lucas gave to NPR, just out of generosity. You know, he said he wanted kids that couldn't afford the movie to have access to it somewhere else. That's cool. So we did the first movie, was the first tape, the first show was, I think, 10 hours long as opposed to two hours for the movie. And all that's Lucas material. We did this long scene on Tatooine, and we weren't getting it. We were recording it in the studio, and we were supposed to be in a hut, an ice hut, because the weather was so bad. And so we ended up, the three of us, just taking whatever was around, chairs and coats and stuff, and building a hut, and taking the microphones into this hut, and playing it in this hut. We had so much, it was just like little kids playing, you know? And although we were, achieving a very useful purpose. It's just so satisfying. But anyway, so I'm the second of three people to play that part so far, Han Solo. But I, I didn't make even a slight attempt to make people think I was Harrison Ford because I couldn't do that. Harrison Ford was just magnificent in that part. Nobody could ever touch him. All I could do was just do a, my version of it and hope it worked, you know, because... You, you can't touch Harrison Ford. His sense of comedy and timing and and wry kind of, oh, he's just so good, that guy. But when somebody like Lucas is writing a story, sometimes you don't need that. It's because it's, it's such a good story that yeah. you can have someone different play a particular role and it, and it still works. Well, I think everybody tells me, I can't judge it, of course, but everybody tells me that those shows, all of it, all the actors, they had a lot of the original actors, and we did all three of them. We did two. And then years later, the third one of the first trilogy. And everybody said they were great. Ben Burke gave us all his sound effects. You wouldn't think that wow. that kind of a show would work on radio, but it worked very well. It was so funny, too. I remember. And guys, stop me. If I rant, I go on and on and just. Oh, not just, at all. Please do. <laughs> okay. But I remember that the, we did the first two and then we came back. I don't know, six, eight years later, something like that, to do the third one. And it was so funny. We all burst out laughing when we saw each other because it really looked like we'd left the set 
at the end of the second one. And we'd all gone out and got completely bombed for weeks and not slept and not eaten properly because we all came back years later and we all looked eight years older or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was it was so funny to see each all each other again after that time. Do you think that that uh, the lack of an audience staring back at you or cameras in your face, like you talk about doing the voice work? I, I I did a little voice work, worked in radio for about five years, and you can be talking to a quarter of a million people at a time. You just don't have those eyeballs staring back at you. Do you think that, that process of being in a studio and just you're playing to the mic frees you up a little bit? Well, for me, there's always somebody watching me, whether it's a camera or a microphone or an audience. I always make it very personal. So. You know, for me, if I'm on stage and there's a thousand people out there, as there is in Broadway, for me, I'm playing to one particular person. I may not see them or know them, but, and the same with a camera. A camera is a very real, living, breathing thing to me. I play to that lens and to the lens and the director behind the lens, if he's a director that I feel close to. If not, then just to that lens, you know? And the same with the mic. There's somebody on the other side of that microphone, always. And almost always just one person. Hmm. Interesting. So how does your acting style change depending on which medium you've mentioned? So you've done radio, you've done television, you've done film, you've done uh, stage. You, so in all of these different mediums and arenas, how is your acting different between those? Well, and that's really an interesting question because that, that gets asked of me and everyone, I'm sure, a lot. Um my feeling is that acting is acting. It's the same thing, wherever you do it. There are different techniques, but there are a lot of schools in LA, for example, I know that teach what they call camera technique. And in my opinion, I'm sure this will get me in trouble, but I don't really care. It's bullshit. There's no such thing as camera technique. And my proof of that is one of the wonderful things Shirley McLean did for me. There I was, I was 22, right? That's 50 years ago. And the, the operator, the camera operator, we were starting to shoot this scene. We were out at the ice rink in, in, in uh, Central Park. And it was wintertime. And the, the operator said, Perry, you just missed your mark. God damn it. You missed it again. And I said, what's a mark? And everybody stopped talking. There was dead silence. And Shirley McLean was just there off camera. And she said, after a long pause, I remember, and I didn't know why there was this pause. But because I knew nothing, nothing. And she said, all right, everybody. And she was the producer. You know, she was the one paying the bill. It's not her personal money, but she was responsible for the money. She said, all right, everybody, go have a coffee, take a break, come back here in 45 minutes. And she took me aside and she sat me down and she taught me camera technique in 45 minutes. And she did it beautifully. I never needed any more than what she taught me. I drank it in, needless to say. I mean, who wouldn't? I was getting this stuff from one of the greats, right? Yeah. That, okay, a mark is this. This is why it exists. Matching, key lights, overlaps, all that stuff, right? She taught it to me. It didn't mean I did it well, but at least I knew what I was trying to accomplish. And I, I've never needed any more camera technique than that. The one thing she didn't teach me, I'd say, that's useful for actors is camera geography. But, but that's a concept that most actors never seem to get clear about, which is camera right, camera left, and why there is a right and a left, you know? And certainly if you direct, you got to know why there's such a thing as camera geography. 
I'll quickly tell you an example that will make it clear. Let's say we're going to shoot a scene where one guy's riding a horse down a road and another guy's chasing him on another horse in a separate shot. So I set up the sticks, the camera, and I'm on this side of the road and the guy goes roaring past me, right? And looking in the lens, he's going from left to right of the lens, right? Then I'm going to shoot the other guy chasing him and I go down the road a little bit and I set up the camera again to shoot him. Same road, he's going the same direction, but I get on the other side of the road. And when I shoot that guy, the next guy that's chasing him, now that guy is now going, because I've crossed the road, he's going from right to left, as opposed to left to right. They're actually going in opposite directions of each other on film, right? When I cut it together, it's useless. You can't use it because it won't cut, right? That's camera geography. So for actors, I always tell actors that get confused by it, just don't let the camera go past you because it can be very confusing. The screen test I did for George Lucas, he did a terrifically interesting thing. Rather than move his camera to photograph the two of us, he moved us, but in such a way that it cut perfectly. But he just, it's much more difficult to move the camera than the actors. But me, I remember being very thrown by that and losing track of what was going on because all of a sudden I was on the other side of Charlie Martin Smith and stuff, you know? So, you know, it, it, it's just very useful to know that stuff. But the, the actual acting on radio, on Broadway, I got to, I was doing a few good men on Broadway playing Nathan Jessup, you know, wonderful part. God, what a part. Oh, yeah. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> oh, my God, that was fun. But it's still the same process, you know? Yes, you have to project. It was exhausting. You have to project to the back of a thousand-seat house. That's tough to be heard there. But that's the technique. The the inner workings of the method of being a believing what's going on. For example, I I Catherine Hepburn, I spent an afternoon with her once, years and years ago. She'd known my grandparents very well. And they were casting. Uh, they were doing a production of Glass Menagerie, and I got sent up to see if I could get the gentleman caller. And she knew that my grandparents, had, who had lived right beside her in Turtle Bay Gardens, were her houses in New York City. And so as a favor to them, even though they were both dead by that point, she was trying to help me get it. And she could see that I was too young and too callow and couldn't cut it. And so she invited me to her house, and I spent an afternoon with her, with her reading with me and trying to help me up to speed. And I just couldn't cut it. I, I wasn't up to it. But I got an afternoon with Catherine Epperin, and I remember yeah. everything she said, man. And this is her description of what acting is. And these are her words. I memorized them. She said, you get a blanket idea of the character, you work off the other person, and you throw yourself into the midst of the moment. You can kind of hear her voice saying that, you know. You throw yourself into the midst of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God, what boy. And and all the wonderful actors I work with, the ones that, that described acting to me in an effort to help me, like James Mason, who was, God, of all the wonderful people I got to work with, he was maybe the most wonderful to me and so kind and generous. And we were doing this movie together and I was pouring over this big, thick notepad of notes I had pouring over, looking at these notes about this scene, trying to remember each note and make sure that I got all these things into the scene somewhere. And, and by that point, 
we knew each other pretty well. He was, I'm playing his son and, and we had a wonderful relationship. And, uh, I, and I trusted him with my life. I mean, if, if he'd said to me, go jump off that cliff, you'll be better off if you do, I would have done it. <laughs> so he said to me, Perry, he said, you should throw those notes away. He said, he said, they're just getting in your way. If, if they need, if they should be in the scene, they'll be in the scene. They'll show up. He said, and these are his words. He said, what we're paid to do is to believe that what's happening is really happening and has never happened before. And he said, it's that simple. It's not easy, he said, but it is simple. Keep it simple. And I trust him completely. And I immediately did exactly that. I threw those notes away. I mean, up to that point, I would have killed to protect those notes. But I thought, okay, and I threw them away. And I'm telling you, the moment I did that, I felt my acting go, I ratchet up to a level it had never been before. Because what I was doing was just trying to believe this is really happening. And it's never happened before. Whatever it is, it's never happened before. You know, every single time they say roll camera action, it's never happened before. Hmm. Here's, here's something that anybody who's out there, well, you guys are actors. This is something that it's like magic almost. Anything that I do, I love to try and distill it down to one word, if you can. And I mean, not projects. I mean, any activity like i raced cars for decades and i loved that and but with acting the word the one word distillation of acting is listen and every time i get in trouble and things aren't working right i stop everything all the crap i'm doing oh am i hitting you know did i did i get that key light or does so and so like what i'm doing is this blah blah, blah. all the shit that fills your head up throw it all out and just listen it's the last it's the hardest thing to do as an actor because it's the last thing you need to do you already know the lines you've heard them a hundred times before you've read them a hundred times you know exactly what it's very easy to just wait for the other actor to stop talking and then say your line because you don't need to hear what he said you know what he's going to say if you don't let yourself be that and you listen like you've never heard it before everything else follows it's magic. One of the biggest compliments I think I've ever gotten as an actor is that I am directable. And it's by a, a director that Matt and I had together, Jeffrey Bassett, who was a guest on our show before, mentioned that about me. And I thought, and that's why, because I, I listen. Yeah. But, but of course, what I'm really talking about is listening to the other actor. As the scene progresses, hearing each line for the first time, every time. You've never heard it before. You don't know what's going to come out. Just the way we're talking right now. You don't know what I'm going to say. Hell, I don't know what I'm going to say, right? You listen with that kind of innocence, right? And you don't have to worry about the rest of it. It all falls into place. If you've done your preparation properly, the, the, my most satisfying acting ever was this movie I made, The Divide. It was my baby. It was, you know, and I, it was just totally satisfying in every regard. But one of the things was I was directing, too. So I really had no time. I knew I wouldn't have any time to do the usual work as an actor I would do. I'd be spending all my energy right up until roll of camera. I'd be spending my energy getting everything else ready. So I knew that I had to really know who the character was and what he was doing and what he wanted and what was stopping him from getting it and all that stuff. 
I had to have the, all that just there, ready, so that I could say, roll camera as the director, and then sort of as a schizophrenic director, almost the character, say, action. And several times I forgot to say action for that reason, because I'd be ready to go, you know. And then at that point, I just open a door in my head and I would literally do what she said, Catherine Hepburn, throw myself into the midst of the moment. And I found that several times in that movie, my character that I was playing, this old Alzheimer's rancher, cowboy, would do stuff that I had never thought of. Never occurred to me, but he'd do it. He'd just do it on his own. And afterwards, I think, God, that was wonderful. That was perfect. Because I was just believing it. And letting that, you know, it's what actors call making the marriage. When you when you and the character, you no longer think of them as separate. They're just, it's me, it's him, it's us. It's, you know, usually it feels like you're rooming with somebody. You're not really them. You're just kind of rooming with them. But sometimes you just, well, a movie I made when I was still in New York, The Lords of Flatbush, that happened on that film. Chico Terrell, a tough, tough Brooklyn hood, right? I'm 20 six or seven when we made that movie, something like that. And it was so hard for me to get into that character that when I finally got there, he really became a real person to me. He taught me things. Chico, he was very tough. And boy, was I not tough before that. I don't know if I am now, but but I remember one night we were coming back from the set and we it was such a low budget movie that we wore the wardrobe all the time and everything. So I'm walking down, I don't know, 10th Avenue or something, um, trying to get back to where I was living with a black leather biker jacket on, you know, and my hair is slicked back. And this car came flying around the corner. It was very early in the morning, I think, like one in the morning. We'd gone very long. This car almost hit me. And as it went by, I still had my engineer boots, my, you know, my motorcycle boots on, right? So this car almost hit me. I pivoted and kicked and kicked a big dent in the side of the car. And the car screeched to a halt. And this big guy got out. Now, at that point, Perry would have run as fast as he could. That would be my solution. But instead, I found myself saying, this is Chico. Apologize for the language, but I said, come on, you motherfucker. Come on, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and the guy went, oh, shit, and got back in his car and left. And that's, that's the best way to win a fight. Just go crazy. And Chico knew it. I didn't know it. I didn't even know where Chico learned that. Maybe you can confirm this. Uh, I know that uh, some of the roles that I play, and again, Greg and I are, are just kind of you know, cutting our teeth on this whole acting thing, but some of the most fun uh, characters to play are the ones that are the most opposite of who you are in, on a daily basis. Have right. you found that to be true? You know, I, Matt Haver wouldn't do that, but my character would. I played lots of bad guys. I don't think in life I'm a bad guy, but in uh, lots of bad guys, those are the best parts of all. Yeah, I agree. Yes, I've been a few good men. What a magnificent part, you know? If you play it right, everybody in the audience hates your guts, even though if you've ever seen the play or read the play, it's very different from the movie. The movie, you know, uh, uh, Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin, brilliant guy, just brilliant, wonderful writer, very, very smart, knows just how to navigate the world and theater and movies. And so he wrote this magnificent play that's very thoughtful and complicated. You know, it's it, the play is about the fact that it's just what Nathan Jessup, Colonel Jessup says. He says, somebody's got to stand on that wall and defend us. Do you want to do it? No? All right. 
then I will do it and get out of my way and let me do it. Stop telling me what to do. Now that's a very, it's complicated and, and true. And you know, the, the parts like that are magnificent to play. Jessup had nothing to do with it. He wasn't remotely like who I am. Our guest today is actor and director Perry King. When we come back, we'll hear more stories from King's journey as an actor and a little more about his directorial debut, The Divide, screened at Cannes in 2018 and won 16 industry awards. When we come back on Heilman and Haver. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is May 7th and born today in 1901, Gary Cooper, best known for his roles in 1942's Sergeant York and High Noon in 1953, both resulting in Oscars for the tall, svelte actor with a slow, deliberate delivery. In the early 1930s, Cooper's doctor told him he had been working too hard, so he went to Europe and stayed a lot longer than planned. When he returned, he was told there was now a new Gary Cooper, an unknown actor needing a better name for films, so the studio reversed Gary Cooper's initials and created a name that sounded similar. Cary Grant. And join us next week, speaking of Cary Grant, May 14th, when we'll be joined by Scott Iman, prolific biographer to the stars and author of the new book about the man-born Archibald Leach, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. And on this day in the year 2000, we lost Douglas Fairbanks Jr. at age 90. Although he acted in approximately 100 movies or TV shows, he never intended to be an actor as a career. And off-screen, his accomplishments were plentiful. He was a decorated naval officer who took part in the Allies' landing in Sicily and Elba in 1943, and he was knighted in 1949. His film roles included Little Caesar alongside Edward G. Robinson in 1931 and Gunga Din, his most famous role in 1939. And although Gunga Din was a bit of a swashbuckling role, Fairbanks made a point of never imitating his famous father. And speaking of Douglas Fairbanks Sr., don't miss our conversation with author Tracy Gossel about her book, the first king of Hollywood, the life of Douglas Fairbanks, coming up on May 21st. Thanks to OnThisDay.com and the Internet Movie Database at IMDb.com for the trivia. So swashbugglers, adventurers, cowboys, tough guys. Joining us today is an actor who knows a thing or two about these kind of roles, appearing in TV series Hawaii Five-0 and Riptide, movies like Mandingo and The Lord of Flatbush, and portraying Han Solo on radio. Perry King has a lengthy resume as an entertainer stretching back to the 1960s, but his latest project is a first. In 2018, he directed the Western The Divide, chronicling the story of Sam Kincaid, an aging rancher with a failing memory, set in drought-plagued Northern California in 1976. Perry also played the role of Kincaid to great acclaim, winning multiple awards for acting and directing. The cinematography is is staggeringly beautiful. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about your choice to work in black and white. You know, the Oscars, we just saw um, Mank uh, nominated for Best Picture, black and white. Uh, we think about Young Frankenstein and some of these other movies that have been made in black and white. What what, what caused you to go that direction with uh, with the movie? Because it's set in 1974, correct? 70, 76. 76. Yeah. We set it that date because that was the last really crushing drought that California had had before actually the summer that we shot, which was equally bad just by, I guess, serendipity in a way. But um, the reason it was black and white, I mean, it, it, it never could have been anything but that as far as I was concerned. And my cinematographer, Russ Rayburn, and I had worked on another project together and we both felt that way. We, we absolutely wanted, the movies that move us the most, that are the most beautiful are always the black and white movies. Ida, do, do you remember Ida from a few, few years ago, a Polish film, and 
Then he made Cold War, Paper Moon, uh, HUD was very important. That's a, a movie that always meant a great deal to me. All those films, it just had, and I called Russ, wrote him, and, and after I saw Mank and said, you know, this is going to get a lot of attention and you didn't get the attention that you deserve for the divide. I don't think. And all I can tell you is your director thinks that your work in the divide is far superior to Mank. To me, Mank is, yeah, it's black and white, but it's muddy and diffuse in places. Our, our film Russ just did an incredible job. Plus he was behind the camera. He was the operator and he would give me the most wonderful framings for the first few days or a week, I was checking his frame and making sure that he was giving me the frame I thought I wanted. But very quickly, I began to realize that he had a way better eye than I did, man. And uh, his frames, when they weren't like the ones I was envisioning, were better. For example, you know, when when my daughter's truck rolls up come, and she shows up at the ranch? Yeah. And she comes through the gate and then the truck rolls up and it comes right into lens to the point that all you see is one headlight. Right. And the crew and the first assistant all said, you can't do that. You got to either widen out and see the whole truck or have the truck go out of shot or blah, 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 blah. And both Russ and I said, no, this is what we want. This is exactly what we want. It's wonderful. Well, the, there was tension in that relationship, obviously, between yeah. the father and daughter. And I think that that's that shot is a perfect example of a way you can use the camera to give that a tense feeling here. This is it's telling the story. Exactly. She's moving in and taking over the world of the ranch. Now it's going to be different now. She's making you uncomfortable. She's coming so close in that shot. He captured that. It's like that movie Ida. That was God. What a great film that is. That one best foreign picture, maybe four years ago or so. And the first shot in Ida, or one of the very first shots is of the young girl and she's praying and she, and it's all black and white, beautiful photography. I mean, the most beautiful in the world. And she's at the bottom of the frame. Most of the frame is empty and she's praying to a crucifix, you know, and it just tells you everything about that girl at that point in the story that she's diminished at the bottom of this frame. She's happily of no consequence. Well, anyway, so black and white, you know, John Ford, everybody loves John Ford, but I mean, I worship John Ford and the movies he made. And and John Ford said, black and white photography is real photography, he said. He did not like color. He felt that color spoiled your focus. You you get confused and you lose track of, of shapes and what's really going on. I mean- It just has so much more feeling. You can, you know, the expression, especially one thing I noticed in The Divide, the um, especially your character, that those range of emotions were so visible, small little movements of the face and mouth and eye ticks, things like that just jumped out at you because of it. Black and white. You would have missed all those things. Yeah. Like you said, it would have faded. I mean, I went looking for money for the black for the divide and I found several sources of money, but they all would say right away. They'd say, so we got to do it in color. We can't do it in black and white. And I'd say, no, no, it's going to be in black and white. And they'd say, well, I won't fund it. And I'd say, well, then goodbye, because I'm not making it in color. There's no point to me to do it in color. It's not going to be a color movie. But of course, that hurt the commercial aspects of it and all that, all of which I don't really care about. I just wanted to, I wanted to, before I'm dead, I wanted to make one movie myself, my way that I could feel proud of. And the writer, my partner in it, Jana Brown and I, and she wrote it. 
but we based it on, you know, we created, she created the story, but we, we worked our way up to the story. And we, we, we knew we were going to shoot at my ranch. So we, we built a story around what I had here, but uh, we both feel that it's the movie we meant to make. And that's a feeling that I literally have never had in my whole life before this, something turn out to be what I meant it to be. I mean, that's so hard to achieve. And with movies, it's incredibly hard because you've got so many people involved. You know, I figured out, I think I figured out why we all love movies so much. The whole world loves movies. Always have, ever since they were invented by the Russians. And the reason is, I think, that movies involve, movies, television, film, video, whatever you want to call it, involves all the art forms we've ever created, we humans have created, in one form. Movies are painting, our writing, our acting, our music, our dance. It's all there, all of it in one form. And that explains why it's so hard to make a good movie. Because I've been in a lot. Nobody ever sets out to make a bad movie. I've been in a lot of movies. And I know nobody, everybody always thinks this is going to be great. And yet I've been in a lot of bad movies. So what happened? How did that happen? Well, it turns out it only takes one department, one of those art forms, to let their side down and the whole thing crumbles. And we like to focus the podcast on kind of these components of filmmaking. We have it. We've had uh, screenwriters and uh, Foley guys, and we had Nick Dolan, who was a, a composer. And yeah, each of these pieces in, and we, and we keep thinking every week, every time we talk to one of these people, well, music's the most important. And then you get to the Foley guy and you think, Foley's the most important. Right. And then you get to the guy, then you cinematography and cinematography is the most. So yeah, to your point, each of these things adds to um, the, the film. They're all right. They're all right. Each of them is right. It is the most, each one of those things is the most important because they all have to be there right working or the whole thing falls apart. what do you think of the music? Do you like the music of the divine? That's Jay Unger and Molly Mason and Jay Unger and Molly Mason wrote, did you ever see the, uh, the Ken Burns thing on the civil war? It was sort of when mm, Ken. Yes. Burns- yeah. So Jay Unger and Molly Mason did that music. And I, from the moment I heard their beautiful Celtic violin, plaintive violin stuff, I just always thought if I ever make a movie, I want that music. And I was busy cutting the divide, get, get finished, you know, after we shot. And, and my uh, talking to my sister who lives in Vermont, and she said, who's going to do the music? And I said, well, I want to find somebody who could do music like Jay Unger and Molly Mason. And she said, why don't you get Jay Unger and Molly Mason? <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. And that had never occurred to me. I mean, it was like saying, why don't you go get God to help you, you know? <laughs> and she said, they're, com- they're giving a concert next week. I'll go there. I'll try and meet him. And I'll see if I can. And she went there. She She's amazing, my sister. She and so good, so good to me. But she managed to to talk him out to meeting her for di- dinner. They went out. They had a meal together. She said, "My brother's an actor. He's got this film that he's doing, and and you know, and he wants you to do the music." And I sent him a rough cut, and they they agreed. And we did the whole thing. This is so interesting because it's modern, the modern world. We did the whole score, everything, and we never met. We didn't meet until it was all over. Wow. And I said to him at one point, I said, shouldn't I fly out from California to, they live in upstate New York and, and go into your studio and work with you? And, 
And Jay said, well, you can if you want. He said, but I don't think you need to. We're doing great this way. <laughs> He'd send me the tracks. I'd put them against the film. I'd say, yeah, this, this is great, but that doesn't quite work or blah, 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 blah. You know, and we, we got there. I, I just love the music. And my favorite thing about the music in the film is it's so perfect for it, but it's not there a lot. So that when, when it does show up again, we picked, we were very careful about when it was going to show up. But when it does come back, it's like an old friend has come back into the room or something, you know? It's a character in and of itself. Yeah. That film made me so happy on every level. Of course, I lost my shirt. I lost, I'll never make any of my money back and I could care less. I don't care. Well, so the, the one of the highlights was it was it premiered at Cannes, which was great. Yeah. And we've got, we've got our local film festival coming at the West Sound Film Festival. And Matt and I are kind of heavily involved in promoting that and being involved um, with that. They're good for you. That's great. So that, and they're accepting submissions. So if you had to, cause there are probably some folks that are submitting that are listening to the show, how to advice for young filmmakers, people that might be submitting to a film festival or, you know, first time filmmakers, what kind of advice would you give to them? Well, of course I made huge, all kinds of mistakes. And I could talk for hours about the mistakes I made and the ways I would say if I had to pick one thing to remember of the lessons I learned, it would be follow your instincts. It's an old lesson. We've all heard it a million times before, but trust your instincts. Every time I didn't trust my instincts and I let somebody talk me into something else, I regretted it. Follow your instincts and trust your instincts, you know, hiring. Another second lesson to that would be when you think you've vetted somebody enough before you hire him, vet him again. Because once you've hired him, if you if you got to fire him, it's going to be ugly, painful for you, painful for them. And I had to fire a few people because they just weren't doing their job. And it was all my fault as far as I was concerned, because I, I could have figured it out if I paid more attention to the betting. Here's another lesson that, that surprised me. Another lesson I learned, this sounds like I'm I don't know, trying to ingratiate myself with women or something, but I had severe difficulties with three or four or five men on that film that basically wanted to inject their ideas into it. And I'd say to them, look, go make your own movie. This is my movie. We're going to do it my <laughs> way. Right. But all the women I hired, whether actors or Sarah Arrington playing my daughter or, or, Joe Haskin, the producer, any of the women that worked on that film, Janet Brown, they were all magnificent and just absolutely 100% helping me do this thing I wanted to do. So hire women. Don't hire men anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what What's next for Perry King? Do you have any more projects in the hopper or uh, you've, you've got your ranch there? Summertime's coming. You've got how many head of cattle do you have? Uh, we're way down now because of the drought. We've had to we reduced it. I've got 500 acres here, but that used to be able to support close to a hundred head. And now we're, God, we're down around 35, maybe 40 head. Cause it just doesn't, there's not enough water to grow the grass. And if you start supplementing them by buying hay, boy, that the economic equation goes upside down really fast at that point. So yeah, I've got my rent. I've got, you know, I'm a lucky, I'm just pathetically lucky guy. I, I have so much in my life, but I honestly feel that I should stop acting, doing anything with show business. Cause I've reached, I've, I've just done my favorite thing on 
several levels. And you know how athletes retire right at the top and you think, perfect, go away right now. That's the perfect time to walk away. And then two years later or something, they come back and they've lost it and they're no good anymore. And it just really spoils their the whole thing. So I think if you're smart, King, you will just stop right now and walk away. You know who did it perfectly was uh, Cary Grant. Cary Grant quit acting long before his death. And people would try to get him to come back. And he'd say, no, I'm, I've stopped for good reason. They'd say, why did you stop? He said, I want people to remember Cary Grant at his best. And I'm no longer Cary Grant at his best. So I'm done. I finished. Well, you'll have to you'll have to tune into our show next week. We're actually interviewing Scott Iman, uh, who's uh, done biographies on countless uh, Hollywood stars. And his newest book, uh, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise, has really gotten a lot of attention. Oh, I'd love that. I will. I want to read that book. I love Cary Grant. Cary Grant was just at his peak right before World War II. He was the absolute best at comedy. Look at uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, for example. My God, you you laugh so hard you cry when you watch that movie, you know, or Bringing Up Baby, right? He was the best at comedy. He was the best at romance. Nobody could be more romantic than Cary Grant. And he was the best at melodrama, North by Northwest. And each time he do these things, you think, oh, my God, that's what he does. He doesn't do that other stuff. This is what he does. The reason he could do that, I think, is because he grew up, like so many actors, he grew up doing vaudeville. Mm-hmm. Long gone now. And, and it's, it's the worst thing that could have happened to actors. Because vaudeville was, you know, you do five shows a day. Yeah. Five shows a day. I did a few good men. We do eight shows a week. And on Saturday, we had two shows. And if I didn't go out and have a thick steak between the two shows, I couldn't get through the second performance. And they would do five a day. And if you were supposed to be funny and you weren't funny, the audience threw tomatoes and stuff at you. That teaches you how to be funny really fast. <laughs> yeah. You know? You, you, and, and all those guys that were so good, they came out of vaudeville. We don't have that anymore. Sidney Lumet somewhere said, in New York, actors learn acting from the streets. And he said, it's not a perfect way to learn it, but it's pretty good. He said, in L.A., they learn acting from each other. And he said, that doesn't work. And I think he's right about that. You know, there's a whole modern school of young people acting that's just make no mistakes is the core of their acting skills. It's yeah, you talk like this, you don't say anything, you don't move anything, your face doesn't move, you just blah, 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 blah. You know, you just don't don't make a choice. And if you don't make any choice at all, nobody can criticize you. Mm-hmm. Another book we'll have to send your way. We uh, we just recently interviewed Robert Bader and uh, he wrote Four of the Three Musketeers specifically about the years that the Marx Brothers spent on stage, predominantly his, their vaudeville years. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, a, a, the, a testing ground like no other. Well, stage is where you learn. Stage is where you get better. I've done a lot of theater, actually, over the years. And stage is where you take chances, you experiment. Even when you've got a production like A Few Good Men on Broadway, every night I and everybody in the cast, I think, would pick a scene or a moment to experiment with, you know, to see if you could maybe find something you'd missed before, you know. You can do that without hurting the experience of the audience at all. You, and, and, you know, Lawrence Olivier said, the first responsibility of an actor is to make a fool of himself. Now, there aren't many actors in Hollywood that believe that. They're so careful 
They just, you know, they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to do anything. And we're supposed to read into that, all this meaning. And Here's a question for you, Perry. What role, is there a role or is there a project that you have not done and have always wanted to do that could pull you off that ranch? <laughs> well, there's two, actually. They're both Shakespeare. I always wanted to play Hal in Henry IV, part one. Ah. Uh, but I'm way too old for that now. But I always felt that, I think this is accurate. Nobody ever, I've never seen anybody play it the way I think Shakespeare wrote it. What he wrote was a play where Hal, the future king, he's the one person who really knows exactly what's going on. <laughs> right. <laughs> they always play him as a sort of a fly-by-night, wasted, you know, drinking, unserious kid. But he becomes the golden king of England's history up to the point that Shakespeare was writing. And I always wanted to play him. And he does that that monologue that always gets cut, where, where he talks about nothing like the sun. You know, he, he talks about when I do finally show up and take over being king and I show them that I'm a good king, I'll be so much brighter because of what a what a, a troublemaker have been up to that point. They usually cut the monologue. Anyway, the part that I think I'm perfect to play right now, <laughs> and I would love to play, but who knows what will happen, is Petruchio, Taming of the Shrew. Mm. Ah, okay. I'd love to play that. And what I'd like to do is to play it with Sean Young. Sean's a, a good friend of mine, and we've talked about this. And Sean has this reputation of being a bad girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Of being just everybody's nightmare, which is totally wrong. She's not that way at all. Not at all. She's crazy, but hell, we're all crazy. <laughs> you know, she's wonderful and wonderful to work with. And we've done a couple things together. I would love to play Petruchio. I mean, he's, it's just so funny, you know, the way he teases her. He said, Kate, fair Kate, Bonnie Kate, Kate of Kate Hall. She sticks it in him back. The problem with that play is everybody freaks out because of the end of the play, because the way Shakespeare wrote it, she submits and agrees that he will be her lord and master. But there's ways to get around that. You do that scene, and at the very end of the scene, you put in a piece of business that shows you that they're both just saying that because it's expected of them. They know perfectly well they're going to spend their lives together verbally, jousting all day long because they love it that's their <laughs> relationship you know but anyway if we're directing taming of the shrew you just got the part yeah thank you that would be fun. <laughs> i'd love to play that i'm i'm almost too old for that too but not quite i think i could just get away with it still well, Perry, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, a whole lot of fun. Uh, we've learned a lot. Uh, there's a few There's a few things I'm going to commit to memory, uh, just like you did uh, with your time with Miss Hepburn. And I can say I learned it from Perry King. Good. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that a great? Don't you love that? Con That's something I used in auditions over and over and over. That concept of throw yourself into the midst of the moment. I would literally do that in auditions. I'd turn away from whoever I'm auditioning for. And as I swung back to them, I would throw myself in my head into the moment because, you know, auditions are so hard. You're in a crappy little white room with glaring light and everybody's bored and you're doing it. You know, you're reading lines for a love scene and off camera is a 50 year old bored to tears casting guy. And, 
you know, nothing's there to support you. So you got to do it all in your head. And I, that's how I do it. I'd use her advice. I, I know we got to finish, but she talked to me a lot about Spencer. Ah. I'm sitting there listening to Catherine Hepburn talk about Spencer. That's what she said. And, and she said he was the best actor she'd ever known. And the reason she said was because you could never see the wheels turning. You could never see him acting. He just thought he concentrated. And he, by the way, is the best listener. A lot of actors would tell you this. He's the best listener in film history. Hmm. Watch it. Go watch him sometime acting in some old Spencer Tracy movie. He listens like nobody else. Just wonderful the way he listens. And he never missed a mark. He was famous for that. And people said, how is this possible that you've never missed a mark? Just, to, just in case somebody's listening and they don't know what that is. It's a mark. Mark is something they put on the floor and you have to, you have to hit it when you walk forward and stand on it for the camera to focus properly. It's very important. It's irritating, but it has to be done. And he said, well, I'm, I'm a human. I look at him. And if you watch his acting on film, he's always doing this. He'll be walking along and he does this. He looks down. He makes it part of his characterization to look at the floor. And he puts his feet on the mark and then he looks up again. He said, how can I miss a mark? I look at him. Before you go, I got to tell you a piece of acting advice that I read years ago from John Wayne. This is the best piece of acting advice, film acting advice I've ever heard. And I use it on a set. 10 times a day on any set I've ever been on. John Wayne, who was a superb film actor, way better than anybody ever recognized, knew exactly what he was doing all the time. Well, totally in charge of his craft, just like Cary Grant. John Wayne said, when you say something unimportant, do something. So you got a line that's stupid or worthless or exposition or just a line you don't like. Cover it with business, his point was. So I've got a line that says, so uh, we've been talking a long time. We got we to gotta hang up now. You know, that's the line in the script. So if I don't like it, if it's unimportant, if I think it's stupid, I just, so it's getting late. We got to hang up now. See, and I just killed the line. I just threw it away with the business of drinking. And the opposite, he said, is when you say something important, don't do something. Right? So if your line is, if you're here tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. That you don't say, if you're here tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. You don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You say this, <laughs> if you're here tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. Nothing. Let the line do the work. Brilliant advice. Absolutely invaluable advice. You can make a career based on that concept alone. I really mean it. And he did it. Well, maybe uh, maybe a book is in your future. All the all the great advice and tips and things you learned uh, throughout your your career, which has been is now over five decades, correct? Yeah. Well, I've thought about that about writing an autobiography, but it would be <clears throat> not about me. It would be about all these wonderful people. Mm -hmm. I didn't even tell you about Claude Rains. He was the first great piece of advice. So I'm 15, I think. My father's a doctor. His father. His, his best friend is a doctor, and together they were helping Claude Rains survive cancer, although, you know, it wasn't survivable, but they were helping him as much as they could. And Claude Rains had learned from my father, I guess, that I wanted to be an actor. And he gave me an afternoon of his life when he had very few of those left. Hmm. And it was just pure generosity from one actor to another, you know, 
I spent an afternoon listening to this man. He was so feeble and old. His wonderful hair that he'd had his whole career was all gone. But his eyes were burning and bright. He was so alive. And he told me about, for example, working on the West End, I think, in London with Vivian Lee. And they back-to-back, they do Caesar and Cleopatra one night and Julius Caesar the next night. Back and forth, back and forth, stuff like that. I mean, he was everything I hoped to be, right? And and haven't gotten there, although I've been very happy with, you know, I'm very lucky, but I mean, Claude Rains was one of the greats. But anyway, at the end of the afternoon, my father's dragging me out the door saying, come on, you've exhausted him, leave him alone. And I said at the door, I said, Mr. Rains, before I go, tell me the most important thing for me to remember of this afternoon. And he said, this is what he said, and he gave it to me like a gift. I, he knew exactly what he was doing. He handed this to me and basically said, here, kid, you try this. It's been good to me. You see if you can run with this. He said, and I got to imitate him because I can hear his voice so clearly. He said, the most important thing is enthusiasm. Bam, the door closed. And I tell you, of everything I've learned from incredible people, that's the best. That it is simply incredible what you can get through in life and accomplish in life just by smearing enthusiasm on it. Hmm. You know, when things are good, you don't need help. When the script is great and the director's great and, you know, we're doing Slaughterhouse-Five and all the actors are wonderful and stuff, who needs advice? Who needs help? That's wonderful. But it's not like that most of the time. Most of the time, the script stinks. The director is a traffic cop and couldn't care less whether you're doing your job. <laughs> right or the other actors are self-absorbed and not very good. That's that's This is the truth. This is the way it is, right? You're on your own. And so what you do is, according to Claude Rains, this is how I read it, is you show up and you say, this is going to be great today. I'm telling you, we're going to, it's wonderful. We're going to make this scene fly. And you just do it. You know who did that so well is Natalie Wood. She was great at that. If anybody had a right to be, to be, she was a good friend of mine. If anybody had a right to be jaded, it was Natalie Wood. She'd been a movie star since she was like five years old or something. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but she would show up at five in the morning, which is what they always make you do when you shoot and film. She'd show up exhausted, her hair crazy. And she'd say, this is a great scene today, Perry. This is going to be wonderful. I'm telling you, filled with joy and enthusiasm about what we were going to do. It was just wonderful. And it's contagious. Yes. Enthusiasm is contagious. Yes. Because you come in enthusiastic, the next person builds on that. And it's, yeah, it's a great, great thing. You can see the way I talk about all this stuff that I love. I've learned my lesson over many years from Claude Rains. I just, it's my nature now to be filled with joy and enthusiasm. I'm, I got my darkness just like everybody does, but I will not give into it. I insist on being filled with enthusiasm about whatever is going to happen. And he handed that to me. I swear to you, he knew just what he was doing. He was chiseling that into my, the walls of my brain as the door closed. Well, this has been a treat, Perry. Thank you so much uh, for spending time with us. I know that our, our listeners are really going to enjoy this one and uh, benefit from all of the wisdom that you're passing on from the, the, the folks who, the, the shoulders of the giants you stood on, right? Exactly right. And I know they'd want me to do just that, pass it forward, you know, as much as I can. Well, thank you again to our guest, Perry King. Perry's directorial debut, The Divide, a beautifully shot and moving Western, is available on DVD and Blu-ray. 
and to stream on Amazon Prime. You can find out more about the film at thedividemotionpicture.com. And don't forget to join us next week, Friday, May 14th, when we'll be joined by film historian and acclaimed New York Times best-selling biographer Scott Eyman. Scott is the author or co-author of 15 books, including biographies of John Wayne, Cecil B. DeMille, Louis B. Mayer, John Ford, and Henry Fonda and James Stewart. Scott's latest book, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise, draws on Grant's own papers, extensive archival research, and interviews with family and friends. That's the definitive portrait of a movie immortal. That's Friday, May 14th. And remember, Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon, Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. If you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and please share the podcast with a friend. We'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. And until the footlights come up again, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver. <laughs>